Welcome to Driving Forces. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you for staying with WBAI this afternoon. You were just listening to John Kane and Reagan DeLogan's. Reggie, thank you for mentioning the song, You Got a Friend. I am now going to try to actually sing out loud today when that happens. So thank you so much for bringing that up. That's at, uh, at what time tonight? Uh, after the clapping session, which is around two, uh, I'm sorry, uh, around seven oh two ish. So give or take a couple of seconds. So I want to apologize to my neighbors here in Jackson Heights. Are going to hear me belting that out a little after. Okay, seven. you I said it. Tonight. <laughs> so I would normally say it's a beautiful day outside, and I'd encourage everyone to get outside. But frankly, I'm looking at a park, Caddy Corner, from where I live, and I am noticing a number of people who are congregating, a number without masks, enjoying the warmer weather, but kind of not heeding the advice to wear masks. Uh, also, when I had gone into a local CVS to pick up some medication today, I was surprised uh, about a few people who were just not staying away from each other or even wearing gloves. Uh, so it is a little surprising how people are feeling as if because the numbers are going down, the number of new cases testing positive or deaths are going down here in New York City and state that they feel that it's time to kind of relax uh, their precautions. It is a difficult time. Uh, this is going to go on for some time, and with each day, there is a mix of news. Some states are moving to reopen businesses. The president is moving to reopen the economy. That is controversial at this point. The number of deaths, as I noted here in the state, is dropping each day, but the virus is still very much a part of our lives. And again, I, I let our listeners know, especially if you're new to this show, that I live here in Jackson Heights, only a short distance from Elmhurst Hospital. So often throughout the day, I hear sirens, but I have to say this is the first day in a number that I have not heard the frequency of sirens that punctuate my afternoon and evening. Uh, in news of the day, and I want to kind of just flip around, just move my uh, device over because I, uh, before I get to more coronavirus news and our first guest, uh, if you have not heard breaking in political news today, the Justice Department dropped the criminal case against Michael Flynn. That was uh, Trump's first national security advisor who had previously pleaded guilty to lying to FBI agents about having conversations with a Russian diplomat. That's just breaking within the last hour or two. So when it comes to coronavirus, here's just some of the latest news. Uh, unemployment. I'm sure everyone who's listening knows someone who has had to file for unemployment benefits, who's lost their job, who is having a, a tough time right now, uh, trying to figure out if they could stay in their homes or f put food on the table, feed their families. Three... 0.2 million more people filed for uh, first-time unemployment benefits last week. Over the last seven weeks, that brings it to 33 million people across our country. And officials are saying that in some states, more than a quarter of the workforce is now considered jobless. And when I talked about how some people that I'm seeing are relaxing their precautions right now, it made me think about a poll that just came out yesterday. Uh, most uh, New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut residents think that it is too soon to reopen their states. And officials are saying that first, they have to prioritize curbing the spread of the coronavirus. The majority of people who responded to this Quinnipiac University poll seem to agree with that. 
that fewer than 40% of residents also said the region should reopen immediately or in the next few weeks. And that statistic, over 50% in the tri-state area said it would take several months or even longer before lifting restrictions on businesses. Meanwhile, if you have not heard, the governor, Governor Cuomo today, extended the rent moratorium by another 60 days. That goes now until August 20th, saying that no one can be evicted for failure to pay rent. There are some who believe it needs to go on beyond that. There needs to be uh, a significant amount of stimulus funds that are earmarked, uh, not just for tenants, but also for landlords. And that's something that we'll be following in the coming weeks uh, as well. A little more. Before we get to the first guest, most of uh, this came out yesterday. It's interesting. Well, many of us are staying indoors as much as possible, deciding not to frequent places that are heavily congregated. The governor basically said that from their uh, their surveys of 113 hospitals, that most of the recently hospitalized coronavirus patients in New York are people who followed precautions of staying home. 66% of the new coronavirus uh, hospitalizations are people who are either retired or unemployed and not commuting to work on a regular basis. Uh, the Times also is reporting that the virus is affecting many of our communities uh, disproportionately. Disparities are uh, most significant in states that have comparatively newer or less established Hispanic communities. That's been another interesting finding. Uh, also, a new study this is a good sign. A new study offered some hope. Uh, nearly everyone who has had the disease, regardless of age, sex, or severity of illness, eventually apparently makes antibodies to the virus. And these are the uh, immune molecules that are produced by the body to fight pathogens uh, that help them to protect against the invaders. So I'm just going to check with Reggie to see if our first guest uh, might be on the line yet. Ah, great. Thank you. Okay, that brings me, in talking about health, that brings me to my first guest, Dr. Mitchell Katz, President and CEO of NYC Health and Hospitals. This is the largest public health care system in the country and provides inpatient, outpatient, and home-based services to more than a million New Yorkers each year in over 70 locations across our city. And that includes a network of, of 11 acute care hospitals that provide trauma care, dozens of inpatient specialties and mental health services, as well as five nursing facilities, dozens of community health care centers, uh, among other facilities. Since he began on January 2018 here in the city, he has focused on advancing the transformation of our public health care system with numerous new initiatives to expand access to primary care services, reduce administrative costs, and invest in more frontline clinical staff. He previously, if you don't know much about Dr. Katz, he previously was the director of the Los Angeles County Health Agency, director of the Los Angeles County Department of Health Services, and before that, director and health officer of the San Francisco Department of Health for 13 years. Dr. Katz, welcome to WBAI. Oh, thanks so much for inviting me. So can you first give our listeners an update on, on the latest information about the number of cases that our city's public hospitals are, are dealing with? Uh, sure. Uh, well, New York City went through really hell. Um, at our peak, New York City Health and Hospitals had more than 3,000 COVID uh, positive patients in our 11 facilities. Uh, now, 
we have only about a third of that, 1,100. Of course, that's 1,100 more COVID patients than we had um, on uh, March 1st. And where are you seeing the most need currently among your network of hospitals? Uh, the, all of the hospitals have uh, been helping us. Um, the greatest number of cases has been in uh, Queens uh, and South Bronx, um, and but all of the hospitals have helped. So uh, early on in the uh, epidemic, when uh, Coney Island Hospital was not hard hit, we transferred a lot of patients to them, and then they started being hard hit, and we had to transfer patients out of there. Um, so um, it's been a time of level setting at all of our hospitals. Uh, fortunately, the emergency departments are now uh, much more quiet, but we still have uh, over 500 patients in the 11 facilities who are on ventilators. So still a, a very difficult time. And it's interesting you say that about Queens because one thing I noted at the top of the show, I live only... Uh, a few blocks from Elmhurst Hospital. And throughout my day for the last few weeks, I've often heard the sirens, but I've not heard one today. Uh, I don't, you know, that's how I kind of gauge how we're doing because it's not uh, punctuating my day right now. Where are you, um, where are you seeing a drop overall in the daily numbers when it comes to uh, specific hospitals? Are there any that you're say, seeing now where it's gone, you know, dropped so low right now uh, where you might have had to redeploy uh, from medical professionals to other facilities? Um, well, what we've been doing is we've been redeploying people from the emergency department to the intensive care units and medical surgical floors because what you notice about the sirens is absolutely true. Um, the, in fact, our emergency departments are currently quieter than average. Um, but we still have so many patients who are in the hospital on ventilators and they need uh, intensive care. Many of them, uh, besides being on a ventilator, require medicines to maintain their blood pressure. Uh, many are requiring dialysis. So we have a smaller number of patients uh, but they need a more intense level of care. And what's interesting to me is that you know, I'm someone that I heed the warnings. You tell me basically to stay home, to put on a mask, to put on gloves. I do that. I've been a little frustrated what, that I'm seeing more people, though, congregating in a park across the street from me without a, you know, without a mask or in some cases gloves. Are you worried that if we start, you know, if you know, businesses start to reopen again and the weather gets nicer, even though one forecast has possibly snow in the next few days. But if the weather gets nicer, are you worried that if people start to relax their precautions, that we may then again quickly see an uptick of the virus here in the city? Uh, I, I am worried, but uh, let me first uh, say you're a hero for doing your part in keeping um, the virus in check. And every one of your listeners who is staying inside to the extent they can if they're not an essential worker is a hero. Also, we're not so big on gloves if you uh, sanitize your hands because sometimes the issue of gloves can be whether or not gloves are sanitized. So, uh, but definitely face masks, we do think make a, a big difference. 
I am concerned that as people, you know, feel the cabin fever of having been inside, nice weather comes, people want to be more outside. Um, we want very much not to have a second wave in New York City. We want to see those numbers continuing to go down. Um, we have to remind people that even if they feel that they're young and therefore um, would be able to do well with the virus, they may be going home and there may be other people in their buildings who are older and more vulnerable. We want everybody to do their part to keep the virus in check. And in recent days, uh, I've been following the coverage about a number of children presenting with this uh, uh, multi-symptom inflammatory syndrome, Kawasaki disease. What are the symptoms and what, what has uh, the treatment been? What are the hospitals encountering? Sure. Uh, well, we keep learning new things about this virus, and it's certainly a nasty virus. Um, in general, children have been spared, but of late we've noticed this uh, unusual manifestation that looks a lot like uh, what a uh, syndrome called Kawasaki syndrome. It, it, Kawasaki syndrome itself is of unknown origin. Um, the children who are developing Kawasaki-like symptoms, which are high fever, rash, um, and swollen lymph nodes, um, not uh, all of them are necessarily COVID positive, but we don't know if perhaps they once were COVID positive uh, and that this is a, a post-viral syndrome uh, from having been previously infected. Uh, it is a serious illness and it has a unique treatment. Um, uh, so it's treated typically with gamma globulin and, and uh, as along with aspirin. Um, but it's the kind of disease that can be very serious. And so the important message to children, uh, to the parents about their children, is that uh, the symptoms of high fever, uh, rash, swollen lymph nodes um, should immediately result in a call to uh, the child's doctor. And if the child does not have a regular doctor, going to uh, the nearest emergency room. And, and what are your latest recommendations if people believe they're showing symptoms and feel, you know, the immediate reaction many might have is, I think I have a symptom, I'm going to go to the hospital right now. What advice do you have for them? Um, well, at one time, we, we had to urge, urge, urge everybody to, who was not short of breath to stay home because our emergency departments were overrun. Uh, happily, we are no longer overrun. Um, so uh, we do uh, think that um, people, especially if they are short of breath, should come to the emergency department. People who may have been afraid to come to the emergency department uh, before with other symptoms um, be, uh, because they worried that um, everybody in the hospital had COVID should now be reassured that the health and hospitals facilities and hospitals around New York City, um, the emergency departments now are relatively quiet. Uh, all of them have separate areas for people who have COVID-related symptoms and non-COVID-related symptoms. I think the right advice is always to, to call your doctor. If people don't have a doctor and they need medical advice, they can call 311, the city's line, 
and they'll be transferred to Health and Hospitals, which maintains a clinical line that people can call at any time. You know, I think of what a hospital looks like to me, uh, you know, and how whenever I've had to visit a facility, you know, what each you know, unit looks like and where I go and the flow of the hospital. And I'm curious how this pandemic is going to affect how our city hospitals care for patients in the coming months and years. Can you talk about that? Well, it's a great question. Um, It's going to take some time for us to sort out. Um, I always believe that some good things can come out of even horrible things. And the example I always remind people of is we would never have great treatment for hepatitis B and hepatitis C were it not for the AIDS epidemic. Uh, horrible epidemic killed so many people, um, but the process of developing treatments for HIV resulted in our knowing how to develop treatments for hepatitis B and C. And so I think in the case of COVID-19, there'll be no way to bring back the people who have been lost, but we should think about What can we learn? What can help us going forward? I think that clearly um, people like virtual visits, like being able to see their doctor without actually going to um, the clinic area. I think you're going to see a lot more of home monitoring, uh, people using blood pressure cuffs at home, people using um, oxygen meters at home, um, and calling in those results to their doctor, uh, the same with uh, home testing kits. I think a lot more future care is going to be done at home with people virtually calling to their doctors. It will be more convenient for everybody. I think also um, that care will ideally be more at keeping with the time when the patient wants to be seen. Uh, too much of health care has been about, well, the next available appointment is in four weeks or six weeks, and that has tended to be the answer regardless of whether you have a 30-second question or a five-minute question or you have an hour-long question. I'm hoping that the future of, of medicine on the outpatient side is a great deal more flexible and patient-centered. I think on the inpatient side, you're going to see hospitals more gearing up for intensive care patients. We tripled our capacity to care for patients with intensive care needs. Um, we hope that that need will, will drop and will not be needed in a, in a second wave, but I think we'll likely retain those beds as flexible beds that can either be intensive care if needed or uh, can remain regular medical surgical beds. And we've got just a few minutes left. Uh, I do want to ask about uh, how your uh, doctors and your nurses, your healthcare professionals are holding up. What mental health supports do your frontline staff have? Yeah, well, very thoughtful of you to ask. You know, it's been a horrible time for our healthcare workers. Um, This crisis combined um, the very most difficult aspects of care. First, as doctors and nurses, we like to make people better. But what we were seeing was people would come in short of breath and within two or three hours, they would worsen and need to be intubated. And this is a disease um, that uh, 
up until very recently, we've had no treatment at all for, with uh, approval of remdesivir, the Gilead drug there, there now will be uh, one treatment that, that seems to have some efficacy. We have used other treatments um, like uh, uh, Plaquenil, which is a medicine that's uh, been uh, typically used for other conditions, but we haven't known how effective it is. But in general, it's always harder for doctors and nurses when there is not an effective treatment. Second, there's been worries about people getting infected themselves, uh, bringing home the infection. A lot of our healthcare workers uh, have been staying in hotels so as not to risk bringing the virus home with them. Um, and then people have actually taken care of their coworkers who've gotten sick. So all of these things create traumatic conditions. We are offering uh, both concrete support um, to our healthcare workers, comfort items, food, clean scrubs, hotel rooms, transportation, as well as emotional counseling with both peers and professionals to help people get through this traumatic time. And every night at 7 o'clock, it really moves me when I hear all the applause, the horns honking, you know, the the show of support uh, for the heroism of these healthcare workers. What goes through your mind when you hear that every night? Well, it it makes me feel very good. My my daughter uh, comes into my room and says, Dad, they're clapping for you. (laughs) <laughs> um, you know, I think it's a very sweet way of people showing support in a socially distanced way. Um, and I know that healthcare workers appreciate it. Uh, we've had also the, the firefighters have come with their engines and given siren um, salutes to the healthcare workers. We, we all appreciate knowing that people recognize how hard it's been uh, for us through this time. And uh, final question, uh, on a personal level, and I ask all my guests this, how has the pandemic affected you and touched your life? Um, Adam, uh, I think for all of us, we probably won't know fully until a little more time goes by. Um, you know, I lived through the AIDS epidemic, through the worst years of it. Um, when all of my patients, all of my friends, all of my work colleagues got sick and died. Um, And I never expected to live through another epidemic. Um, And in many ways, uh, this one has been harder because of the rapidity of it. Um, The fact that people haven't even had time always to say goodbye. and the, the fact that this disease, unlike HIV-AIDS, is so easily uh, transmitted that, we, that at a time when we most need to be together, we have to be separate. Um, and I found that very difficult. Uh, I'm a primary care doctor who's used to hugging his patients, um, and just the, the whole idea that my primary care practice is going to be now with a mask and socially distant, um, I find that very difficult. Um, how it will affect us overall, or me personally, I think it's too early to tell. 
Dr. Mitchell Katz, where can people go to get the latest information that you have? 311, uh, uh, multilingual, uh, and connect you to uh, 24-hour physicians if you have clinical questions. Dr. Mitchell Katz, President and CEO of NYC Health and Hospitals, thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you. So you've been listening to Driving Forces on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons. I was just talking with Dr. Mitchell Katz from NYC Health and Hospitals, and we were discussing the impact of COVID-19 on our healthcare workers, people who are serving on the front lines of this pandemic. Uh, amid this crisis, Governor Cuomo had issued an executive order that allowed 12 medical schools across New York City, Westchester, Rockland, and Long Island to graduate their fourth-year students early instead of waiting until their graduation dates this month. The new MDs who have matched to residencies uh, that are going to start in July were able to volunteer at New York City at New York hospitals in the interim. Our WBAI correspondent, Celeste Katz Marston, has been collecting the stories of New Yorkers fighting their way through the storm of the COVID-19 pandemic in her series, which is called New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. And in her latest episode, she spoke with Dr. Rafael Hernandez, who agreed to go straight from graduating medical school to caring for COVID-19 patients as a junior physician at NYU Winthrop Hospital. Let's play that interview. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. My name is Rafael Hernandez. Um, I was born in Cuba. I was raised in Miami, Florida. Currently, I'm um, working as a junior physician at NYU Winthrop Hospital. Working with COVID patients, it, it's a new experience and um, in many ways, and in many ways, it's uh, similar to just treating your, your normal patients. As I got ready to uh, go into a, a, just a regular shift um, to treat my patients uh, with coronavirus, I try to keep things separate in, in my apartment. Uh, for for example, well, for the moment, I'm living away from my fiance to sort of uh, try to um, prevent my um, infecting her with the virus if I do come into contact with the virus. You have to think to yourself at all times that you need to take certain precautions that don't necessarily come natural to you, like don't touch your face, make sure you clean your hands every time you touch a surface, uh, and make sure you things as simple as the, don't don't lean against the walls unnecessarily to protect yourself and to protect your patients when you see them. I try to mentally keep myself um, in the moment and and uh, make sure that I, you know, that I interact with my patients at a at a real level and and still maintain contact with them without making them feel isolated. I think it, speaking to, to my COVID patients, I, I think that they their sort of um, experience in the hospital is, is different. Um, there is a, a, a lot of fear and a, a lot of uncertainty with uh, this virus. Even even us as the um, physician community, you know, we, we are, we're learning of the virus as we go along. And, you know, it's uh, when we speak to our patients, for example, if they hear good news or the family members hear good news, you can hear... You know, you, you, they'll have a reaction of, of, of joy and, and shouting, clapping, uh, which is really amazing. Um, some patients come to tears when, when you tell them that they're getting better, that they, they're going to be sent home, which is, uh, I think, 
it's something that's new and in particular to the virus because you know because of all the fear sometimes patients don't feel like they they might make it we have I have had the patients that uh, unfortunately have have not uh, made it and we, we we have spoken to family members um, you know the, the true heartbreaking part of all of this is that it's it, it's the separation it causes uh, we've had uh, unfortunately um, situations in which not all family members who would want to be at the bedside have been able to be at the bedside when a patient has passed away. They they've they've been they haven't been alone with with the support of the nursing nurses and the doctors. Um, you know they're they're never alone. We had one patient uh, unfortunately who passed away. His family couldn't be by his side, but the nurse was by his side holding his hand um, at the last moment. Personally, we've um, we have we every hospital is. Um, a little bit different. Uh, we were we working uh, usually twelve hour shifts. There's a lot of support within the hospital, um, within our colleagues. Uh, always asking, "Are you okay? Um, do you want to take a minute?" I myself try to uh, keep uh, my schedule as balanced as I possibly can. Unfortunately, it's for hard to uh, go outside and exercise, but I try to get enough sleep, make sure I keep myself eating uh, um, healthy foods and, you know, make that a priority to try to be um, at my best when I do go into the hospital. When I first uh, was offered, um, was asked to, if, if I could, would be willing to join as a junior physician right out of, uh, right after graduating from medical school, my first instinct was, yes, of course. And then after that, sort of the fear settled in because you fear for your family members and those around you. Um, and then, of course, I, you know, I could reach the conclusion that I want to do it. And it has been an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. Um, it's something that I hope will make me a, a better uh, physician when I start my residency. And this experience, I would hope, would um, sort of help me understand where my patients are coming from. Rafael Hernandez is a junior physician treating COVID patients at NYU Winthrop Hospital. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. And that was our Celeste Katz Marston. WBAI has been bringing you the voices of New Yorkers from all walks of life who've been impacted by COVID-19. I urge you to visit WBAI online at WBAI.org to listen to this series by Celeste. Uh, we're going to continue to bring you more of these stories in the coming days and weeks about how this pandemic is affecting people in all sectors, all walks of life. Given my work, I, I'm sure uh, listeners who have been tuning in to Driving Forces uh, since I started know that what I do during my full-time job is I work uh, with nonprofits. Uh, my firm works with about three dozen nonprofits, and you know this has been interestingly a very active period because they're all suffering. You know what I do here is on the side I volunteer for BAI. I've been a longtime listener. Uh, but what I'm seeing every day right now is how this pandemic is devastating all, you know, many of the nonprofits that I work with, they're having to cut staff and shut programs and trying to find a path forward. And, you know, that's why I made sure this Sunday, I'm sorry, this Tuesday, uh, on what was called Giving Tuesday Now, I made sure that I donated money to the nonprofits that I've been working with. And uh, I hope you did, too, because they are lifelines to the communities uh, that they serve. Uh, and I also care deeply about supporting media. And I'm going to talk in a little while after my next guest about how you can support WBAI at this time. 
uh, I believe that we need a rich and diverse array of media outlets, particularly in this environment, when we have a president who's often called the media the enemy of the people, you know, when the media are just doing their job. Uh, and, and that's very important to me. Uh, so uh, I'm going to bring up my next guest in just a moment, Eleanor Tatum. She's the publisher and editor-in-chief of the New York Amsterdam News. This is the city's oldest and largest black newspaper and one of the oldest ethnic papers in the United States for more than 110 years. The New York, and we've been around for 60 at BAI. For more than 110 years, the New York Amsterdam News has reported for and chronicled the life of blacks in New York. And the coronavirus crisis has brought serious distress to so many of our economies and advertising along with them. And that has been a, a challenge for a number of media outlets. And it means that New York Amsterdam News, like so many others, have to fight for their survival right now while continuing to provide you with important local news and information as a public service. Eleanor Tatum has been the paper's editor-in-chief, uh, I believe, since 1997, when she became one of the youngest publishers in the history of black press. She started at the newspaper as a journalist covering local and national issues affecting Harlem and the black community. And under her watch, the Amsterdam News was modernized to include an online edition, a new layout, and it refocused with content that was relevant to a wider African-American community in New York, but also across the nation. It's a pleasure to welcome Ms. Tatum to WBAI. Welcome. Thank you, Jeff. It is so good to be with you today. It has been a long time since I've been on WBAI. And I do want to start off uh, before we get to the reason I wanted to have you on by also applauding the New York Amsterdam News for your coverage last October uh, when WBAI was taken off the air. I remember the headline clearly, Sabotage when we were unceremoniously all, you know, uh, people were fired by email, the doors were locked. Do, uh, Amsterdam News did terrific coverage, and I want to thank you for that. Well, thank you very much. And, you know, WBAI has been around, as you said, for 60 years, and it has been another voice that is just so needed um, in New York. And, uh, you know, it's a voice that is heard, you know, across the country. Uh, the, the voices that we have at the Amsterdam News, the voices at WBAI, the voices that so many of these independent media organizations are so necessary. And this crisis uh, has shown it. Um, and the crisis that we've had for the last uh, almost four years has shown it. Um, and, you know, with without these independent voices, uh, so much news would not get out there. And the voices of the voiceless would not be heard. So talk to me about how the Amsterdam News has had to change its operations and your coverage since the pandemic uh, affected our country, but mainly New York City. Well, basically overnight, we had to change to a virtual newsroom uh, where we were used to being side by side, laying out a newspaper every Wednesday and uh, collaborating face to face. We had to start doing that over a Zoom and Google Hangouts and uh, not being able to see uh, a page in our hands but over a computer screen and having to talk about layouts versus being able to point to where things needed to be. And and that was a, a huge learning curve for us. I mean, our first uh, week that we're putting out the paper, when we usually, you know, put a the paper to bed at seven o'clock at night we were still there at you know still on the phone with each other and on the computer with each other at i think 10 30 11 o'clock at night 
Um, so, you know, the printer was not very happy with us. Um, but, you know, very quickly um, we uh, got that down to, you know, 9.30 and then to 7.30 and then to 7. And the printer said, okay, um, now our people don't want to be here um, anymore, right? So we're now telling you that we're going to be printing your paper at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. <laughs> and so that changed our schedules even again. And so, you know, we've had to learn all of these things, uh, how to do things so differently and so quickly and so it's really been a trial by fire and um you know our people have really pulled through and have really come together and done this uh and it's been difficult it's not been easy and it was also you know getting equipment and and things like that and i mean i must say that you know this morning we got great news we were recipients of one of the facebook um covid19 uh, grants um, which is going to allow us to get some of the equipment that we really need that is going to make it much easier for our reporters and for our designers to do the work that they really need to do um, to be able to report on this crisis um, and um, be able to get the news out to, to the folks of our city and our, our country. And so we're really proud of that and we're really thankful to, to Facebook for, for supporting the local media. Uh, the, the media oh, landscape... I was going to say the media landscape itself is is just going to change significantly. What are you hearing from your peers at other news outlets? Because so many are I'm hearing from friends who've been furloughed. They've scaled back on their coverage. They're not sure of their future. What are you hearing from other news outlets as well that they're going through that kind of illustrates the challenges you face as well? Well, you know, right now we're still actually printing a printed version of the paper while we're doing uh, you know much more online there are a lot of newspapers that are not printing a um a piece of paper at all you know the newspapers are not actually printing in many many cases they're only doing online versions um and i am not sure that a lot of those will ever go back to actually printing um you know hard copy paper at all um and whether or not they're going to be able to survive with just online editions is is a question uh, unless they're very, very innovative, uh, I think we're going to see a, a follow-up of a lot of titles um, in the coming six months. You know, I think especially the black press and ethnic newspapers across New York City and across the country have been um, struggling as it is. Uh, but with the pandemic, the um, the advertising revenues have basically, you know, gone down, I would say between 75 and 90%. And so what was a struggle before is now, you know, a death, a death now. And um, those that are going to be able to survive are going to have to be very, very nimble. And um, they're going to have to be very, very, um, in the way that they decide that they're going to move forward. Um, and unfortunately, I don't think everyone will be able to do that. Uh, and everyone is saying, I am not sure how I'm going to be able to do it and what that future is going to look like. No one has come up with that silver bullet yet. No one knows what that future is going to look like. There, there are issues that have always been part of your coverage that are really in the fore right now. We think of NYPD over enforcement, controversial arrests, homelessness, imbalances of resources to address uh, systemic societal problems. Talk a little about how the New York Amsterdam News, Amsterdam News is covering these issues now amid the pandemic. 
Well, you know, it is exactly the same issues that we have always covered, as you said, except with a coronavirus um, twist to them. You know, our front page yesterday was the discrepancies in the way people in our communities are treated by the police versus people in other communities. You know, it was the juxtaposition of the police treatment of uh, people of color versus the people um, in, you know, the middle of Manhattan um, in Central Park um, during you know, quarantine in a beautiful day. You know, you've got um, parks police looking over Sheep's Meadow, you know, just standing there as, you know, hundreds of people are sunbathing in the park and not a hand being laid on them while you have another person being wrestled to the ground by police officers. Um, And this is the daily lives of people of color in New York City. And there's a problem with that. And that is what we continue to to have to focus on because that is just our reality. And it's the reality that continues to, to, to raise its ugly head, no matter if it's a pandemic or not. Yeah, and, and another thing that I do want to point out that you've covered, uh, I'm calling it up on the screen right now, it was done by Cyril Josh Barker, and I'm, I'm glad to see this story because I have been a big proponent that people need to fill out the census. And he, you know, he's talking about in the story how just under 40% of New Yorkers have responded to the census as of late April. You know, why do you think that is? Why do you think that, especially when people are at home and you could do this online, why do you think we're seeing a lag in census participation? Well, I think some of the things that happened with um, the citizenship question that Trump tried to put on the census form um, had a lot to do with it and really scaring a lot of people with with that question. And um, the fact that it's not there um, did not, even though there was so much education about it, it still dissuaded people from, from filling it out. And I think the city did try extremely hard to educate, and I know Julie Menon um, tried extremely hard and put out a lot of information um, to get people out there to, um, to, to convince people. But, you know, there's, uh, there's a true fear of somebody knocking on your door, and, but the fact is that if you filled out the census, no one was going to knock on your door. But people still are afraid to give out information, and that is just the age that we live in because everyone is afraid of of information and the way that it can be used against you these days. And I think that has a lot to do with it. And and so people are just trying not to to give out anything personal, which is going to hurt everybody in the long run. So um, I think it's really a shame. Um, that people have not been as forthcoming um, with the census, and New York is going to be hurt because of it. You know, I think we've got a few minutes left, and, you know, I think about what the daily life has been like for a number of the nonprofits that I work with. And, you know, one leader told me the reason she can't talk to me until the evening lately is because she spends her entire day seeking new types of funding. You mentioned Facebook, uh, and and that is great news for the New York Amsterdam News. What is your daily uh, day like these days? Uh, I would assume that you're spending a lot of time not just running a paper, but trying to find sources of revenue. 
Absolutely, yeah. I mean, well, my, my daily life now, instead of going from meeting to meeting, you know, uh, via transportation through city streets, it's navigating the Internet and trying to figure out what platform my meeting is on. Um, <laughs> you know, am I on a Zoom meeting? Am I on a Google meeting? Um, <laughs> you know, I, just try, trying to figure out where, where, where my hangout is. Um, and uh, then I am, um, you know, combing the internet as well for what sort of funding sources there are and uh, filling out grant applications because that's where the money is coming from because it's certainly not coming from advertising right now. Um, it, it is coming from um, organizations and um, from, you know, PPP loans and talking with bankers and trying to navigate all of that. Um, talking with creditors and seeing how we're going to navigate when mortgages are going to get paid. You know, all of that is reality. It's not only for the individual, but it's for the small businesses as well. And so and, it's, uh, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a lot of paperwork is what it is. Yeah, and it's amazing because every, you know, I search every morning through uh, a number of online sites looking for any type of uh, information on new sources of revenue that I could share with my nonprofit. So, uh, you know, I, I empathize with you. Uh, we've got just about a minute or two. And, you know, I ask all my guests this because as much as with a lot of guests, I talk about the policies and numbers. Uh, there are a lot of uh, personal stories, and I'm moved every day as I'm reading papers, when I read uh, the obituaries or death notices, and I, and I do spend time reading them because I don't want to just focus on numbers. How have you personally been impacted and touched? I'm sure there are people you know uh, who might have tested positive or passed. How have you been affected on a personal level by this? You know, it's interesting. Um, the coronavirus, uh, I know a lot of people who have had people that have died because of the coronavirus, but more so than that, I have found that so many of my friends have had family members that have died from other causes besides corona, um, but I don't know if they would have died at this time if it had not been for the coronavirus taking over so many hospital beds. Um, I don't know if it was quite their time yet. Uh, and that is something that has weighed very heavily on me. And I feel like every day I hear about somebody else who has lost a mother or a father, um, and not necessarily because of this, this deadly virus that's going on. But the other thing that happened recently um, was that my own mother became very ill and you know originally I thought oh my gosh it must be corona um, and we took her to the hospital we're actually in upstate New York right now and um, we actually found out that she had appendicitis um, it wasn't the coronavirus it was appendicitis and um, you know we were not in New York City so you know the ability to be treated was much different than it would have been had we been in the inner city. Um, and having that luxury of not being in Manhattan at the time um, was a real reality check to what was going on in the world. And um, I know and my mother's fine right now. She's not going to have surgery for several weeks, but um, 
but you know she's she's in good shape and um i am just glad that uh you know she's still here with us and uh and that i'm not one of those people that is having to deal with the realities of 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 grief right now yes so many people are eleanor tatum uh how can people uh, follow you, learn more about you, and uh, also discover, you know, I encourage people to go online or go to a newsstand if you can find one that's open right now and pick up a copy of the Amsterdam News. How can people go, uh, how can they follow you and learn more about the Amsterdam News? Well, one of the things they can do right now is they can get a subscription. Um, you can go to uh, www.amsterdamnews.com. And uh, you can get subscriptions online. Um, you can also, if you would like, you can um, contribute to the Amsterdam News through the local media association. They have um, created um, a, a, a way to give to newspapers across the country. The Amsterdam News is one of them, and it is tax deductible. Um, it is, uh, you can go to Give Butter, that is Give, E-U-T-T-E-R, dot com slash Amsterdam News and um, you can make donations to the Amsterdam, Amsterdam News there and um, you know any support just going to our website and reading our articles um, is also a way to support us and that's of course AmsterdamNews.com uh, and you know, leave comments follow us on, uh, on Twitter on Facebook and uh, interact with us uh, all of it makes a difference. Eleanor Tatum, publisher and editor uh, in chief of the New York Amsterdam News. Thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be with you. Thank you. So I was just your list is Jeff Simmons. You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM. I know I've got to close the show in a few minutes, but Eleanor and I were just talking about the value of news. And, you know, I, I can't preach enough about how important it is to have a diverse array of, uh, of news sources and information sources in our country. It is critical, particularly during this crisis. And that's why I just want to leave you, you know, with a few questions. Think about why you listen to WBAI, why you tune in, why you listen not just to this show, but any show on BAI. It could be about Leonard Lopate or Gary Null, or it could be about Max and Murphy, or it could, of course, be about our wonderful Reggie Johnson if you're up overnight. And when I and I will tell you, Reggie, I do try to stay up some nights. I just can't make it till midnight at my age. I'm half asleep. There's um, always <laughs> the archives. But, there's the archives, I know, but I like I like to listen live when I can. So if you have a moment, please, at this time, we really do need your support right now. We've just started our fund drive. The last time we had our fund drive, remember, we were off the air. That's what Eleanor and I just talked about, and it kind of set us back. We're not corporate. We're not commercial. And as I just talked with Eleanor about, we've been around for 60 years and we want to stay uh, on here for another 60. And so I'm just asking you if you have a few moments to become a BAI buddy. I know times are tough. I know right now we're thinking about our economy. You're thinking about your health. Many people are wondering how they're going to make ends meet. Every 
dollar will count. If you can give 10 or 20 or become a BAI buddy like me where I just give 10 or $15 every month, it's a sustaining contribution. That will keep us going. That will carry us forward. So here's the number, 516-620-3602. Once again, 516-620-3602. You also can just go online. It just takes a few moments. The website address is give to, that is the number two, give to wbai.org give to wbai.org and then you just have to click on buddies on the upper left hand corner when the site opens up you could become a buddy and give a sustaining contribution you will get a gift i think we're still giving out our our, our wonderful tote bags uh yep and and, and in this in this and you know for those of us who are still trying not to use plastic bags even though they've suspended that ban for a while that we're able to use them I bring my BAI bag everywhere they're not becoming extinct you want the the BAI bag so please give to wbai.org you can even text wbai to 41444 or once again just call our number help sustain us 516 620 3602. I want to thank my guests today, Dr. Mitchell Katz of New York City Health and Hospitals, Eleanor Tatum of New York Amsterdam News, and of course, Celeste Katz-Morstan, our WBAI correspondent. And Reggie, thank you so much for keeping this going. Thank you so much for keeping our show going, John Kane, all of our shows. It's been a pleasure to work with you. Tune in to BAI this Sunday at 6 o'clock for City Watch. My co-host, David Brand, he's going to be in the anchor seat. One of his guests, Tom Gresh of the Queens Chamber of Commerce, talking about the future of business in New York City. Thanks so much for tuning in, and Godspeed. Godspeed.